Hi, thank you for tuning in to the Finding Harmony podcast with me, your host, Harmony Slater. Hello, and welcome to today's podcast. I'm here with Russell Case, and we're Finding Harmony. Thank you. Thank you. Happy to be here. And uh, it's interesting. Today we have a little bit of a topic about yoga and science. And for me, I always approached yoga more from the philosophical or the metaphysical context. Um, I had a background in philosophy and religious studies. Mm -hmm. And then I had the experience of the practice and I felt its effects on me and within me and I knew it worked. And that was really good enough for me. I, it was enough uh, that it was working, that I felt it working, that I could really get behind it um, and teach it and believe in it. Um, and then also to have the, the philosophical viewpoint and the background and the, the context of from a religious studies point of view or even a metaphysical point of view. I enjoy that sort of more metaphorical, metaphysical language and the imagery that comes with it. And, and so um, I wasn't so, so interested in understanding exactly what was happening from a physiological standpoint. Although I did take a degree, not a degree, sorry, that's, that's a massive overstatement, a class. <laughs> I took one class. Uh, in neuropsychology, neuroscience. So I did understand about brain chemistry and I did also take biology in university. So I, you know, I have some background in the physiology and the physical um, understanding and the neurological understanding of what's going on in the brain, but I never really explored it in relation to the yoga practice so much until I met you. Is that, is that right? Yeah, because you have a keen interest in understanding the uh, neurological and the physiological um, perspective and, and what is actually going on physically, physiologically, uh, when we do these practices uh, that are we, we call yoga. It's interesting, you know, you, you had, your degree was in, forgive me if I'm wrong, but you were primarily interested in existentialism. Yeah, I was a humanities student, so I, I mean, I majored, or I did one degree in philosophy and one degree in religious studies and a minor in psychology. But within philosophy, it was existentialism is what you're interested in. Yes. So the, the total nihilism of your approach is understandable. Yeah, I don't believe that personality exists, really. It's just a construction. <laughs> and, <laughs> and why bother learning about the brain? Yeah. It's, yeah, yeah. You just go on with your experience. Yeah. yeah. And epistemologically, we can't really know anything, you know. Right, <laughs> right. Yeah, so that's the conundrum of studying the brain, is this pretension that you actually know anything. Yeah, you don't right. really know anything. They know so little, actually, about the brain yeah. and even the mind. The mind and the brain are two totally different things. You know, the brain's something you can cut up. You could eat it for dinner if you wanted. But the we mind... <laughs> <laughs> the mind is something ethereal. It's something you can't touch. You can't hang on to. You We're can't... vegetarian. We've never eaten <laughs> You can't poke or prod the mind. And so... Mm. Looking at, you know, I did a lot of philosophy of the mind and, and this brain-mind correlation and how do they 
connect and do they even connect i mean that's a question in and of itself so i I feel like such a stunt you know a stunted runt Uh, i went to art school for 10 years and we took a physics class and they kind of you know were very condescending to us so this you know for you art students if you really want to get a bachelor's degree you have to take physics we're gonna like walk you through this with like easy math from junior high okay <laughs> and we and then they then they we have they allow us to graduate but like you guys who actually went to a real university i mean you, you know so much more than i do about almost everything i don't think so <laughs> <It's true. laughs> i forget almost everything so <laughs> but, but just to say that my my approach has always been from an aesthetic point of view and the aesthetic point of view was, you know, how does it make me feel? What do, and what I was always trained to do was to notice what I like to look at and then notice how it made me feel and then report on it in the studio. And that's the process. Or as you, I guess you'd say process. Goodness. So <laughs> uh, if you see something in your environment, you see clouds, you, you know, you see, you, you see something in the city, and you note it, you note that you like looking at it, you bring it home into the studio and you, you, you work with that material. And I had met Richard Freeman in, in Taiwan. And at that point, uh, you know, Richard's intellect was just so awesome and overwhelming and what he could hold on to and and turn into a metaphorical story and what he he was he was a guy who just absorbed information his his parents were physicians he came from a family of physicians and east st louis and and i grew up in like a pig farm 100 miles east of him (laughs) and it was just he was in a very different social class for me and so i was I was so attracted to him and so wanted to be him. And I noticed something. One that I also wanted to, I was inspired to study anatomy, but I, and, and then had gone. And then I went for the next several years and I did study yoga anatomy, like whether it was the the anatomy of Hatha yoga uh, or other kinds of texts uh, that that have come out. but I noticed how he made me feel. And I was very interested in that, that there was something there that I thought was like the Upanishad or Parampara, where you, you do this uh, uh, Upana, where you sit next to, and that's how you learn in yoga. Mm-hmm. And I noticed that when I sat next to him, that my, the timbre of my voice changed. I was used to speaking very in a very maybe a quick way. I was used to speaking in my nose. I was used to speaking from like I'm from Illinois, <laughs> and then when when I was with him, I noticed that I spoke more slowly. I spoke with my guts. I let the timbre of my voice enter my my diaphragm and enter my my belly, and which is also a way that you speak when you're down south in New Orleans, Louisiana. You just kind of speak with a bit more timbre. And I was interested in the way that that I changed physically when I was next to him. 
And I read this interview. This is, say, um, uh, Barack Obama was, was becoming president. People were really very excited about him. And they started doing a, a study on the vagus nerve and the Bar Barack Obama's effect on the crowds of people that would watch him and, and what effect he would have on their physiological systems. Hmm. So they would take a, a, some kind of measure and they would hook it up to their chest and, and it would measure their heartbeat and they would notice that their, their heart rate would change. Their lungs would, would get deeper and they would, they had a, um, there was a word they used, a new kind, like a kind of emotional word, like, uh, efference. Mm -hmm. It was a kind of word where they would become, um, overwhelmed with good feeling. Right. More open, more receptive. Yeah. What they were doing was going from the sympathetic nervous system to the parasympathetic nervous system by listening to him. Just because of the tone of his voice. Yeah. And maybe the energy he was radiating. In the crowd. Yeah. Exactly. And I read that interview and I said, oh my God, that's what Richard did to me. Mm -hmm. Richard did that exact same thing to my chest. I said, what is that? What is the vagus nerve? I want to know more about that. Mm -hmm. I want to know everything about that because that is what gave me the feeling of yoga. Right. It gave me the feeling of being next to Richard unlike any other human being that I'd ever met. Hmm. Even Patabi Joyce. Yeah. Yeah. Even Patabi Joyce, even Suda. Suda, yeah. This is a person that calmed me mm -hmm. and changed the way that I moved my body and spoke words. Yeah, that's amazing. I had breakfast with Richard Freeman in 2004. Uh, him and Mary, his wife, uh, most of you might know that. And his son, Gabriel, uh, was maybe 15 at this time, I think. 14 or 15. He's obviously much older now. Was this in, in India? It was in India in Mysore. They were there just for a week for Patabi Joyce's birthday. I think it was only a week. Um, anyway, so we ended up having breakfast a couple of times at the Southern Star. and I, I noticed whenever he would talk, because I'd, I'd been listening to the Yoga Matrix. Right. Like... Um, you know, on repeat uh, for like two years. But the thing about the yoga matrix is, you know, if you're a little bit tired, you, uh, you feel it makes you a little sleepy, you know, mm. you kind of can start to doze off because of the tone of the vo his voice. It's very hypnotic. It's very relaxing. And you sink so deeply into the parasympathetic nervous system. And, and now I also am a big fan of Richard and Mary and, and love them dearly, think they're amazing. And it was so funny though to me because I would sit there for breakfast and I'm like drinking coffee. And I've, I mean, I'd been up for probably about six hours already. So <laughs> there's that too and done like a whole yoga practice. But so he would, he, you know, I'd ask him a question because here's an opportunity. It's just their family. And we were the only Westerners having breakfast at the Southern Star at that time. So, you know, we chat and so I'd ask him questions. I don't even remember what I asked him, but he would answer and talk. And, and as he was talking, I could feel myself like dropping and mm -hmm. dropping and dropping. And then I'd be like in, internally 
probably the reason why I don't remember the questions is because I don't remember the answers either. Because <laughs> all I was thinking was, don't fall asleep. Mm. Don't fall asleep. Because I could feel my eyes getting heavy. <laughs> thinking, oh my gosh, it's the voice. He's putting me to sleep. It's so deep. It's so resonant. <laughs> I'm like so calm and safe here. I just want to curl up and go to sleep. That's Yeah, that's the danger of falling into the parasympathetic nervous system or falling into a alpha wave is the alpha wave that can then lengthen and slip into the delta wave <laughs> and that's and and so if you're really wound up that's that can be helpful but if you're also tired <laughs> yeah. if you're fundamentally fatigued you'll fall asleep and so when i listened to yoga matrix i, I was entranced yeah and i was in a kind of uh i was i was fascinated in the way that uh a hypnotist fascinates people mm. and I would just I would follow the thread and then I, I when I was doing yoga workshops around the world I would just do a, um, a st- straight imitation of Richard Freeman <laughs> there's and, a few teachers out there that yeah. have their Richard Freeman imitation yeah. Uh, down flat <laughs> yeah yeah and I, I had mine and I, and I used it uh, for sure um, a, a couple of other things happened that were really lucky yeah um, and that also, while I was studying anatomy, uh, a student walked in my room by sheer happenstance in San Francisco, and it was Dr. Eva uh, Henja Blom from uh, Sweden, and she was at UCSF in San Francisco studying the effects of vagal tone and mindfulness on teenage girls, hmm. and demonstrating in her PhD in her and in, in her work that uh, vagal tone work lengthening of the breath longer exhales than inhales had a dramatic effect on the violence and the uh, the uh, therapeutic activity that these girls were going through. So like violence towards themselves or towards and each violence other? towards each other. And that they were they were reporting less incidents okay. after doing this mindfulness study. So like maybe less incidents of of like cutting or less incidents of hitting. Hitting. Yeah, that kind of negative thing. thinking. Yeah, and okay. um, so then I had a, a term for it as well, not just the vagus nerve, but also vagal tone. Mm-hmm. And so what things could create vagal tone? Mm-hmm. And I knew that yoga did that, mm-hmm. but I was also I was also interested in what what aspects of the brain would turn on or turn off or light up or light or or light up when there was vagal tone. Mm-hmm. The other lucky thing that happened is that I had started working uh, on a project for Stanford University with this nonprofit organization, uh, the uh, Pure Edge. Uh, Pure Edge Foundation. It was also called Sonema. It was called the Batavi Joyce Foundation at one time. And we were doing a four-year longitudinal study on school children in East Palo Alto. And we were looking at the effects of mindfulness on their um, uh, on their brain and the the relative disposition of their brain, which is to say changes in size in different parts of the brain given the uh the circulation that's happening Mm -hmm. so for example 
kids often get Ritalin in mm-hmm. school. And they get Ritalin in school uh, because the the teachers are in, are in some way frustrated by keeping them on task. And the parents at home are frustrated by keeping the child on task. So they, they give the child Ritalin. Ritalin is the exact same chemical structure as amphetamine. And amphetamine, what that does, by sheer chance, it could have been bleach, it, it could have been <laughs> ammonia, but it was amphetamines that has this particular effect just by sheer luck. And that what amphetamine does when you ingest this random chemical, like caffeine, it increases circulation in your prefrontal cortex and your in your forehead. Right. What does your prefrontal cortex do? The prefrontal cortex is responsible for all strategic, tactical, and executive function. So if I have more uh, circulation in my prefrontal cortex, I can... In your forehead. In my forehead, behind my forehead. Mm-hmm. I can um, do things like plan for the future. The thing that you will not do yeah. is uh, wander off. Right. You won't daydream. Yeah. You won't uh, <laughs> think about uh, Spider-Man. Yeah. And th- imagine yourself as Spider-Man. <laughs> what you will do instead is be task-oriented yeah. like that child's mother. Right. <laughs> We're not talking about any child or no. mother in particular no. here. No. So when you give a child Ritalin, instead of wandering off or imagining or daydreaming and doing all these lovely and beautiful things, instead what they'll want to do is clean the room. Yeah. And after they're done cleaning the room, they're going to want to um, do their homework. And when they're done doing their homework, they're going to uh, make sure the room is clean again. Right. Yeah. So... You know, one of the things that cocaine, for example, cocaine is very is very um, popular in uh, for with white people, and uh, it's expensive. It's expensive, right? So, but um, what I learned as a child is that most white people don't like pure cocaine. Mm. Uh, most white people love cocaine when it's cut with amphetamine. Right. Because then they feel like they're wired, they're yeah. happening, they're task focused. They can get a lot planned, a lot done. Yeah. Pure cocaine does something different. Yeah. Pure cocaine stimulates uh, the nucleus accumbens into dropping uh, dopamine into the brain, mm-hmm. which is what happens when you have dopamine into the brain. When you have dopamine into the amygdala, then you get this lovely feeling of of just having received good news. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, I just got a raise. Oh, that's nice. Mm-hmm. I'm important. <laughs> I feel sexy. Mm-hmm. And then you go and have sex. Yeah. That's the nice thing about cocaine. <laughs> so pure cocaine does that. But, when you, but most people actually like cocaine cut with amphetamine. So I have these stories from my childhood, right? Yeah. And now I'm learning about my stories from my childhood because I'm learning about the effect of different neurotransmitters on the amygdala. Right. And I'm learning the effect of violence on the amygdala, which Mm -hmm. also relates to my childhood and what effect violence has on the fight or flight response for the brain, the disposition Mm -hmm. of the brain, that the brain changes shape because of the environment. Now, who else taught us that our environment changes our 
samskara or changes our our uh, relative disposition. Patanjali. Mm-hmm. Yeah, all the yoga teachings teach us that. I mean, we're. I mean, human beings are malleable, and and we do have some degree of control or freedom to make other choices that then will change our patterns or our samskaras and that will then change who we are, affect the outcomes of our life or our karma or um, our ability to make other choices. Right. So yeah, for sure yoga is a philosophy of, of freedom and freedom of choice, freedom of will, but also sort of a radical um, philosophy uh, that is encouraging us to um, alter our reality. Mm-hmm. That's giving us uh, the sort of guidebook that's saying you can change not just yourself, but but your surroundings. For me to to learn to have been steeped in Patanjali like you you know, when we were going to Jayashi's class where mm. we were just being in India or studying the Yoga Sutras on our own like we were supposed to, mm. um, which that's one of the um, the Yamas and Niyamas, self-study, isn't it? Svadhyaya. Svadhyaya, we're supposed yeah. to do that. <laughs> and being steeped in yoga and being steeped in this, um, what did you call it, phenomenological experience uh, of a thing having an effect on us. Mm-hmm. Um, that's different from epistemological. Yeah, that's uh, epistemology is about how you know. Right. How can you know? How can you know? What do you know? And so, <laughs> I'm learning about learning um, about how the the neurotransmitters of the body and the endocrine system of the body, the the cortisol and uh, and oxytocin, the other uh, hormones in the body, how they affect how we feel. Mm. And the effect, how our brain, uh, whether it's uh, Robert Sapolsky or Dan Siegel, uh, f- it was like learning a grand unified theory of how our system operates in life. Mm-hmm. And it was it was colored with all of these different experiences, whether it was the the aesthetics of of art practice uh, or as Richard said that yoga is the aesthetic experience mm-hmm. and whether it was it was Patanjali's uh, very um, psychologically uh, effective way of, of, of giving yourself therapy uh, or whether it was uh, Dan Siegel explaining to me what what neurotransmitters were happening as I was feeling them I felt like I had this. I had a whole mechanism with with neuroscience, of understanding my yoga practice and understanding my 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 therapeutic practices, mm-hmm. and I was intensely interested in in that and wanted to know everything I could about it. And so, I just want to talk a little bit more about when you were talking about vagal tone, mm-hmm. what, you know, you talked about Richard Freeman having this vagal tone or this ability to uh, transmit sort of this energy or uh, vibration that helps 
uh, the student to then experience or feel kind of what he is experiencing or feeling. And the same with Barack Obama, the study of when he speaks or when he he's transmitting some kind of vibrational frequency or something mm -hmm. that's uh, causing people to respond in a very positive, open, receptive way. And you mentioned vagal tone and the vagus nerve in relation to this. Um, and uh, again, this study of um, doing these deep breathing exercises with the girls mm -hmm. and how they were experiencing more positive emotions, more control over the behaviors. Mm -hmm. um, so maybe you can just explain a little bit what vagal tone is or what in your own understanding that you've studied or come across, what is it that's happening in these situations? What vagal tone is, is what, what Batavi Joyce said to us. Mm -hmm. You control your breath. You control your mind. You control your mind. You control the universe. Mm. When he said this to me the first time, I said, uh, what the fuck? I'm not <laughs> controlling the universe like it's the, like it's the Kabbalah, like the secret. I'm not, that's not, <laughs> that's, I remember that from, from the seventies. That's bullshit. <laughs> like that, the, that red flag went off in my head. That right. red flag bullshit meter went off. What vagal tone is though, is that mm. someone with high vagal tone, like Barack Obama, like Richard Freeman, or like the Tubby Joyce. Mm -hmm. Um, who there's another person that I can think of in popular culture with a great vote uh, Dalai Lama the Dalai Lama the guy from Star, Star Wars uh, the guy that does the voice of Darth uh, Vader Obi-Wan Kenobi oh Alec Guinness <laughs> oh I was thinking of the other guy yeah. who did Darth Vader um, his, his Oliver name's... Wendell Holmes I don't know <laughs> was, was uh, the great African American actor the uh, uh he was he was in all the um, the Harrison Ford movies, um, Jack Ryan and that guy. What's that guy's <laughs> name? Uh, James Earl Jones. James Earl Jones with his great vagal tone. <laughs> Alec Guinness with his great with his great vagal tone. Um, when you control your vagal tone, yeah. When you consciously, with great effort, breathe into your chest, exhale deeply, allow your whole full body, your whole diaphragm to speak, mm -hmm. then the nervous system softens. The brain waves slow. It's demonstrable in an fMRI machine. Mm -hmm. it's, you can see it mm -hmm. in the brain. You can see that the fight or flight response in the brain, the amygdala, shrinks with great vagal tone, with diaphragmatic breathing. Uh, breathing? Breathing. Breathing, thank you. <laughs> when you have control over vagal tone with your breath, then you actually have control over your mind mm -hmm. and what kind of thoughts you have, mm -hmm. what kind of experiences you're willing to endure. Right. And with this great vehicle tone, you are then able to perceive objects in your universe as they are and not as you 
project onto them. Mm-hmm. So instead of seeing um, a driver flipping you off as an object to be destroyed, <laughs> as the evil other, yeah. you see them for their pain. Right. And say, oh, that person is actually uncomfortable with my driving. <laughs> yeah. That's what's going on here. It's creating a space for you to perceive you without your personality without or your ego. The or your, lens, without yeah, the personality the lens, of the ego as a lens on that thing. Yeah. Which is to say you have control over the universe. Yeah. And interesting. That's what Patabi Joyce means. And that's, and you know, Eddie would say this thing to me. I'm not sure I ever really, he, he believed it, hmm. I think. And as he said it to me, he said, Ve- Patabi Joyce would say, uh, Shushumna is vagus nerve. Mm-hmm. So the central column of the body, the central, the central nervous system of the body, the eye to the pingalo, you know, wrapping around it. Mm-hmm. You can you control that with the vagus nerve. I don't think Patabi Joyce knew what the vagus nerve was. But, <laughs> but the squeezing of the anus, the mula bandha, mm-hmm. would have a, an effect on toning the vagus nerve. Oh, oh tremendously. Right? If, you, if you understand, uh, if you've ever seen a map of the vagus nerve, yeah. and you understand where it goes... It's the longest, thickest nerve in the human body. It's the 12th cranial nerve. It starts underneath your ears by the jawline, mm-hmm. goes right underneath the carotid artery, which is why it feels so lovely to, to sing. And why you can also bring down your blood pressure probably by pressing on the carotid artery as well. Or by singing. Or by singing. <laughs> and then, a little safer. A little safer, yeah. You can and then it branches out into the upper chest, the anterior vagal region, then it goes deep under the dorsal vagal region, the underneath diaphragm. under the diaphragm, deep into the duth, into the guts. It goes everywhere. Mm-hmm. Do you, you speak any Latin? you a Latin scholar? Yeah, a little bit. What does vagus mean? To wander. How do you don't know that? I know that. You don't know that. <laughs> it's also like Spanish vaga. Yeah. Uh, a, vagabond. A, a vagabond, a vagrant. Mm-hmm. The vagaries of human nature. Yes. So it wanders everywhere. It goes everywhere. It goes deep into the root of the pelvic floor. And so, mm-hmm. yes, when you squeeze mula, when you squeeze the perineum, you're squeezing the root of the vagus nerve. And then you have what's called vagal afferents, mm-hmm. where you're not just receiving information from your extremities. Mm-hmm. But when your extremities make particular actions, whether it's a mudra or whether it's a mula bandha, then information is sent back upwards to your brain. Mm. Relax. That's beautiful. I, I find it interesting thinking about this vagus nerve. I mean, I don't know very much uh, about it uh, specifically or the, the real deep science behind it, just what I've learned from you and from listening to Eddie and a little bit of extra reading I've done about it because I was curious. Um, But I find it fascinating to think because part of how you can uh, tone or strengthen or create this this effect of uh, increasing your parasympathetic response from, from what I understand is what we've talked about here, this squeezing of the pelvic floor mm-hmm. to create uh, circulation, I guess, right. through the nerve. 
Um, but then also doing the Jalandharabandha, mm-hmm. where you're uh, bringing the chin down to the chest and you're putting that pressure or compression on the throat, again, would do the same thing, right? Mm-hmm. It would create this parasympathetic response and strengthen this aspect of our nervous system uh, so that we're more able to, I guess, switch between the sympathetic and the parasympathetic nervous systems. Is that how you would explain it? Anytime you look at something beautiful, mm-hmm. you look at a Sri Yantra, you look at a sunset, you look at, if, if you're in the mood to mm-hmm. see something beautiful, then you will, then the parasympathetic response will, will come about, the vagus nerve will be, will be stimulated, and you'll relax. Sometimes you have to kick yourself in the ass to make yourself relax in the first place. Yeah. Right? So yeah. you have to find a way to, to um, put yourself in the right place. You, stop, you have to stop yourself from being task-oriented mm-hmm. and say, I'm going to go into a, a nice room clean space, beautiful things, Sri Yantra, you'll stop cycling through executive action, mm-hmm. drop into contemplative action, a contemplative space, and then the vagus nerve will start to be stimulated and you'll go into your parasympathetic nervous system. But sometimes these things happen. It's like you read through Zen Cohen's and oftentimes a, a, a monk is just like wandering through the woods and gets hit in the head by a squirrel and reaches enlightenment. <laughs> you know, like, and, you, and they talk about this all through Zen, where sometimes you just have to hit someone in the face. Yeah. It's like there's a, a Zen koan. Uh, Uchiko was asked to describe her enlightenment. Mm-hmm. So she hit him in the face. <laughs> it's it's because it's rude it's rude to ask someone how they became enlightened <laughs> and if you need to ask you need to be hit in the face <laughs> but but also getting hit in the face makes you extremely present to the moment you become mm-hmm. very much embodied and aware and present and so also it's kind of a a, a physiological example of, yeah. of the state of the enlightened mind. Anything that relaxes your tongue. <laughs> yeah. Like being hit in the face. <laughs> or seeing sunset. Or seeing Krishna in all things. Yeah. It's like you get hit in the face. And like, oh, and your mouth drops open. <laughs> and this is what Richard calls opening or dropping the palate. Yeah. The tongue relaxes. Mm-hmm. And that's how you drop. That's when you when you grind your mouth and you furrow your brow and you work on a math problem. Yeah. Then you get hit in the face. <laughs> and then your mouth opens. Uh. Your forehead relaxes. Your tongue drops. What just happened to me? What the fuck? <laughs> what the f- what? And then like. Yeah, that's that's part. That's what a Cohen does to us. A Cohen relaxes our face long enough for us to drop from sympathetic to parasympathetic, for the brain wave to stop being at a, a questioning beta wave mm-hmm. to a contemplative alpha wave, and hopefully we'll get into uh, longer, deeper states of consciousness like a theta or a gamma wave, and or deep states of samadhi where there is no 
sense of time like a like a delta wave mm-hmm. which is not too dis- dissimilar from from sleep but, but you're sitting upright and aware then aware yeah but without a sense of time mm-hmm. or space or i-ness well i think we've we've uh stepped over into the metaphysical realm again so maybe maybe that's enough science for today <laughs> yeah I, i've we've entered the the part of the conversation where i don't know actually anything what i'm talking about <laughs> well thank you so much for talking to me today and to our listeners about the vagus nerve and science and and um how it relates to yoga i think it's a topic that's gaining a lot more interest these days and uh, it's important to kind of understand a little bit of of the science behind what we're doing well, I'm, I'm i'm grateful for the opportunity and, and i hope my um knucklehead um take on on this stuff is is stimulates people to actually learn something for themselves somewhere else <laughs> well i think they can continue to learn with us because we're planning to do some online courses some study groups and yoga sutras and <laughs> Also, that will interweave, of course, uh, the science of yoga, brain science, and and the metaphysical and physical aspects of the practices. So we better go bone up. Yeah, we we gotta we gotta work on those courses a little bit more before we offer them, so that they're they're uh, perfected. But they're coming, and so stay tuned. And if you're interested, be sure you sign up on my website. Get your name on my email list to be the first to be notified when they're ready. What's your website? My website is harmonyslater.com. That's fantastic. Yeah, easy to remember. Okay, well, we'll look forward to chatting again next time. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Finding Harmony. With me, your host, Harmony Slater. You can find out more information on my website, harmonyslater.com. And I look forward to connecting with you again soon. Standing in eternity's shadow, watching the breaking.